Who let the hogs out? Welcome to Hog Planet. Uh, this is your uh, weekly episode podcast where we describe the hogs of politics, pop culture, and just culture in general. I think uh, it's a pretty general umbrella now, isn't it, Sam? Uh, I'm Dan Spaventa. This is uh, Sam Lewis, my co-host. Uh, Sam, uh, what's up? Yeah, uh, hogs. hogs have become just kind of a moniker for... Any kind of self-satisfied, uh, porcine individual who you find rolling around in the mud in politics or pop culture or just even in your daily life. We believe this originated in the United States, but it's definitely gone global. There are hogs worldwide, hence the title, Hog Planet. Dan, how are you doing? I heard you got into some good protest stuff in Brooklyn yesterday. Yes, uh, that's correct. I uh, found out about this rally uh, through the group uh, Equality for Flatbush, and you can follow them on Instagram at Equality for Flatbush. So, yeah, they organized a protest that started in Bushwick, and we marched all the way to uh, near the Lorimer stop on the L train, uh, stopping by a uh, absurd uh, councilman's house. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember his name. Um, he's not my district, so... So I was with a group of people who were kind of uh, holding these shields in mind, said uh, disarm, defund, abolish. So that's something like we've, you know, it's a thing we've echoed on the show. So I just kind of picked that one up. Um, and uh, at one point when we were outside the councilman's house, uh, I was called over with the rest of the shield folks to provide a defensive line. And uh, the NYPD stopped uh, advancing. So, so Dan, did you literally use the tactics that we learned during doing Raiders football as kids to hold the, literally the defensive line? This is unreal, unbelievable to me. I never thought that that experience could come in handy at all. I assumed that it was a white supremacist organization when, in fact, it was teaching us anti-racist tactics. Yes, uh, listeners will be shocked to learn that the football team that Dan and I played on when we were, like, what 11 years old M may have had political leanings it may have been a secret antifa training cell um allegedly nobody knows for sure but I i'm glad you put those tactics to use uh, i'm glad you didn't need some sweaty italian man screaming like hit recover at you to be able to to execute those tactics no and it was uh, it was a great march definitely like no compromise and there were these like cops walking right alongside us like next to me and i was just saying like <laughs> whatever i wanted to them it's always great getting a look at their faces when they're facing oh, yeah. a line of people cuz they're honestly like most of the ones that i've seen in dc are just they're like ready to piss themselves they're so like scared and like honestly demoralized i mean i think we saw like a report like a week or two back about the LAPD and all their uh, police officers who weren't getting overtime and how demoralized they were saying that morale was like an all time low. But either way, I'm glad you were out there, Dan. No, but if I have one observation about the cops, they all look exhausted and like they would all just start charging like the second they were told. But it seems like they're all just too fucking tired. You can like you can like do a lot by just taking up the street and like they were just handing out leaflets to everyone who was filming. It was really, it was really cool to see. Yeah, definitely. And, um, but of course we like to extend the scope of our coverage of the uprisings beyond just New York city and Washington DC. So we have an illustrious guest here to tell us about, uh, stuff that she's doing on campus at, uh, in Ithaca at Cornell university, Gabby Kuby say hello to hog planet. 
Hi, Hog Planet. It's me, Gabby Kubi. It's uh, it's great to have you on, Gabby. Um, we have a lot of questions for you, honestly. So, could you just give us a sense of the work you've done? Uh, we can say under the umbrella of the Do Better Cornell campaign. Just 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 to start us off, what's what's kind of the main initiatives here? Yeah. So, Do Better Cornell is kind of like a home for all kinds of like anti-racism and um, like uplift the black voice on campus kinds of things um, that we've seen as a response to everything that's happening here. Um, Cornell really likes to talk about like diversity and our mission statement is any person, any study, but through like some of the statistics we've run and like some of the student experiences we've read about, like it's very clear that, you know, we're having some trouble actualizing that. So. The point of um, the petitions and the list of demands is to come up with both like long-term institutional changes that can really ensure that we are truly an anti-racist institution, as well as some things that we're hoping to see like in the not so distant future, like next semester, next year, things like that. So I'm looking at the website, it's dobettercornell.com, and it seems like you, you really tried to make this, uh, not just you, but whoever you're also working with, but this this seems like a really just direct action like here are things you can do here are the resources here are the black lives matter resources i mean it's all it's all right there at do at the website i mean it's you really made it quite easy and accessible yeah we sure did <laughs> is that in a way that you feel like the uh, administration didn't um yeah so <laughs> I think let's get into that one of the things we talk about um so there's like a petition and then there's a list of demands after that and um, I and my friend Mame were the main architects for the first petition. So one of the things that we talk about in there is like Cornell has this problem with um, publicizing and making its like diversity and inclusion and whatever else work like publicly accessible. So you see like a lot of campaigns or a lot of resources kind of like housed away on websites nobody uses like URLs people aren't familiar with and like PDFs that don't get regularly updated. So one of the things that we're asking for is like, could you do a better job of updating people about the work that you're doing and can you make it accessible? So we kind of wanted to lead by example with our website, which is easy to navigate and is named in a way that makes it easy for you to find it. Yeah, definitely. And um, it's, I mean, it's just a great design where you just as soon as it's loaded up, you can find links to send an email to the president of the university and trustees. You can sign the petitions that Gabby mentioned. Um, and then it, it also has lists to or, or links to other organizations that are working with Cornell students. Um, as well as I think it's cool you have these infographics at the bottom, which have just general facts about um, about the lack of diversity on campus that you can share on Instagram and other social media platforms so that you can kind of get the word out more. So um, I don't know, were there any other like organizations that you were like modeling when you made this website or like what influenced your, the way that you designed this? Um, so the website design is entirely out of my hands. I don't know the first thing about computers, <laughs> but um, as for like the substance of the petitions and some of like the action items you'll find on the website, um, what we do in the first petition is expand upon um, some 2017 demands that the BSU chapter on our campus um, 
made to the administration after a black student was assaulted, like in the little off campus, but close enough to campus that it's basically part of campus area that we have. Um, and the two that we picked, we saw as like bodies that could stand and like support like further demands because they'd be like parts and like entities of the institution. And then in the second list of demands, they straight up copied and pasted like a bunch of other student demands from like 2015, 2017, different years that the administration um, still hasn't met. So um, some of the ideas that we had were original and some of the specifications we had were original, but a lot of the work that we did was just like recounting things that people had already said that like if they had been created, maybe students would be, wouldn't be like as discontent with the university as they are right now. Do you feel annoyed at all that it, it fell to you guys to do this, that it, it wasn't it, like, shouldn't this be part of the whole, like they have made millions of dollars or they have millions of dollars of resources at these, I mean, giant universities like Cornell, historic universities to devote to things like this, but it took students to uh, aggregate this information. Does that, does that just like, is that like what you, what you would expect, I guess, at this point from toothless university administrators i mean i wish it's what i didn't expect but like there is a long-standing precedent of like student activism being what leads to changes at universities that's especially true at cornell and then like on a more individual level um in my experience and probably in the experience of like other students with minoritized identities like you see yourself as an unofficial diversity worker for the university whether that's just like advocating for yourself and your classmates to your professors or to your department or something larger scale like this. Um, we have kind of seen a trend where like the university doesn't sometimes move to make changes when it comes to these kinds of things, unless it's prompted by students. And so that's really frustrating because um, like I myself, my summer job kind of got nixed because of COVID. So this is mainly what I do. But like we have people who have internships, people who are getting ready to move for their jobs and things like that. So like people who are busy, like living their lives and like doing other shit, but they still have to like do this work for the university when there are probably people who are paid to do this kind of thing. And do you know of like, are there comparable things going on at other schools uh, in the wake of, uh, I mean, just I, I went to Binghamton University and believe me, there were plenty of racist incidents on campus and instances of uh, racism that went unchecked. Uh, one example <laughs> was a pretty embarrassing op-ed uh, that the newspaper ran that a uh, blackface could be okay if you're not malicious about it. Um, and there was a giant protest in the hallway um, organized by a few people, including the Black Student Union, and kind of nothing really happened. That, that article is still up from, God, it was 2014, I think, at this point. And uh, I was in those college radio, so I, I covered it um, objectively as like a news story. But super, super weird. Um, clearly an instance where like the anti-racist education didn't exist because this this girl who wrote this this piece clearly had no fucking clue. And this is at a state university. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... It's kind of disturbing that like a, a college student at a state university doesn't have enough um, self-awareness or like general, I don't know. Uh, and this wasn't like 1984. It was <laughs> not that it would be okay then, no, but, but it was like 2014. 
It was about someone from Orange is the New Black doing blackface as a Halloween costume. Like, pretty embarrassing. Uh, and it's still up. So, I'm not going to link to it or anything. But <laughs> Not great. But I think buried in there in that horrendous anecdote was a question <laughs> about, like, um, are, do, you, do you see other universities doing taking a stand, either in, you know, the Ivy League or in New York or, um, you know, New York State, obviously, not the city. But, um, like, were there other u- universities that you saw that, like, are doing this sort of action or, um, or how, you know, I guess, uh, how does this relate to the broader struggle, I guess? Yeah. I will say that, like, Ivy League-specific news, unless it's something really spicy, like, I like to broaden the scope of my gaze of the educational world. So besides, um, like, some Instagram accounts, like uh, Black in the Ivy League, I think it's called, um, something where people can, like, submit anonymous accounts of, like, their experiences with racism or being Black or whatever. Um, At their different Ivy League campuses, we've seen a lot of Instagram accounts like that. Um, Syracuse um, has had their own like string of activism and protests going on for like most of the year talking about um, how aggressive like their police officers are so they're definitely continuing that kind of work I think Johns Hopkins was supposed to um, they didn't have a campus police force before um, but they were supposed to kind of start planning that or start implementing that and students and professors um, who have like raised their voices have kind of put that on pause for another couple of years, I think. And then I think at University of Minnesota, they have um, defunded their police department. So we're definitely seeing um, students at different campuses kind of take a stand in a similar way, make petitions, protest, things like that. That's good to hear because there's a lot of apathy on college campuses and you know, it's you can't blame someone for being apathetic sometimes because it's it's you're walking into a futureless world. I mean, you can't really. Some people are just not going to get activated. I've I've heard from other friends who are like, yeah, my roommates just don't really care about anything that's going on because it doesn't affect them. And it's like, you know, I think that is endemic to certain. These are friends who are in the university system, most mostly in master's programs, but. It's it's weird to me because I I, uh, I don't know how you could kind of float through life not wanting to take a stand with any of this stuff. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I think that, yeah, I think that one thing this has made me do, at least personally, is like reevaluate what my campus involvements were and like how my interactions with student leadership in those involvements or people who are just my friends or like staff members or whatever like it makes you think and I think something that I've been contemplating a lot is like some people seem really surprised by what's going on and to me like okay maybe it's like one thing if you don't like read the news or like consume anything at all but like a lot of these people who are apathetic or quick to criticize or whatever like you have black friends who have been black the whole time that you've known them. So I, I don't think that it should just take like proximity or like a relationship to someone who's black for you to care about what's going on right now. But at least like at the entry level, that is what I would expect from people. And some people aren't even understanding that, which is super frustrating. Like you were saying. Yeah. And you want to think that, okay, I have this friend, but they don't care about this stuff, but they care about like, people or they're not they're not like a cruel person but it's like 
sometimes it's hard to disentangle that. It's like if you're not with this cause, like, is there something wrong with you? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like what? Yeah, it's I don't know. I don't know how you could not prioritize this right now. Like people have been you've probably seen this, like people just posting whatever on Instagram, still going places like we're not in the middle of a pandemic. Um, yacht pictures, exorbitant like graduation photos, like you should at least if <laughs> at the very least, if you have the money for those activities, it would be great if you could donate to something or just like be sensitive with how you use your social media because just looking at your photos doesn't teach anyone anything or do anything for the cause. Sam, Sam, you want to go off about the, uh, <laughs> the diners, outside, outdoor diners? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't specifically going to go off about that, but definitely, I mean, uh, the worst outdoor diners I've seen were are at the hookah bar up the street from my house. I'm like, so you're just recently allowed to go sit on a patio in public with these other people. And what is the, f- the first thing you've chosen to do is grab a like metal device that you suck on that like at least hundreds of people before you have sucked on. <laughs> like this, like of all the post COVID activities, can't be activities wiping those down that well. <laughs> no, come on, and like oh god, like that one really get, got me. When I walked by the hookah bar up the street and saw that people were just like just ch- whatever you call toking on a chuming? hookah. I was going to say chuming, but I don't think there's, I don't think the, you're allowed to put They're the chum gang. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. The chum gang, the chuka gang, whatever. Um, yeah. That, that one really gets me, but, um, but you know, I was also thinking of, I mean, I, I, it's, it's gotten to this point where like the posting about social justice has gotten so widespread that anytime I see people who are just posting like average cooking pics, if they've, if I've, if they've, there are a couple of accounts I've like friends of mine where they, I mean, not so much friends, I guess acquaintances of mine mm-hmm. where they haven't posted a single thing about black lives matter. I'm like, at this point, not even like a performative, like yeah. post is, it kind of <laughs> makes me feel like you really don't like this movement or something. Even like funny people, a, a lot of them, I feel like have found a way to like use their, like, I've actually been surprised by some uh, people who are, have, you know, changed their their sort of social media uh, brand up to really like be all about this. Um, I don't want to say anyone spe- specifically because who cares? But it's it's it, it's been an interesting thing to watch. From I feel like when George Floyd uh, when the murder happened, there yeah. was a lot of posts. We've said this on the show. There was a lot of posting, just kind of like. Well, my personal racism is such a problem, and I will promise to do something about it. <laughs> and I think, you know, we saw that video from, like, Aaron Paul, and who are the other actors in oh it, Sam? God. Yeah, oh, my God. I know what you're exactly. Like, Kristen um, Bell, I think, is in that one. <laughs> Kristen yeah, Bell the, the is such a like, racist I- that she had to, like, <laughs> grovel. Please. Yeah, that was what it, Please. That's what it, <laughs> I'm one of the non-racist actors. No, that's what it felt like. I was like, what did you guys all do that you're trying to, like, you know, get in front of here? <laughs> seems like a little more guilty than i expected even though i mean obviously we're all complicit or whatever but still um but speaking of posting one of the things that stood out to me on on the updates on the do better cornell website is that student posts that tagged cornell and included hash the hashtag do better cornell were getting untagged and uh new posts were actually even being blocked from tagging the university Whoa. account this is like a, as of two weeks ago is that can you uh gabby can you explain a little bit more about what that what that looked like was the university Censorship. really like <laughs> they're like really censoring student activism uh yeah i mean that's what it seemed like it was pretty wild and i will say that 
like um, some of my friends who were posting in support who like don't go to Cornell were also having problems. So we don't know if it was like an Instagram algorithm kind of thing when it came to people not being able to post or comment. But like we have um, like screen recorded videos, I guess, of like scrolling through their tagged images and like some of the comments um, that were left on the recent things that they were posting because they also keep on, I mean, I'm not going to tell anybody how to run their social media account, but they keep on posting like, oh, like scenic pictures of Ithaca or like, look at these, um, you know, like faculty or staff of color that we have like elevated to Dean or whatever, which is like applause for them. Like, so happy for you. So happy that you're getting the credit that you need. But like, could you not post a picture of like BB Lake right now because nobody wants to see that? Anyway, so we have video of like what the tagged pages looked like. Um, I think the Friday or Saturday that we um, gave graphics to people to start posting and then video from the next day and they went through and untagged themselves. Um, and so we did um, me, Mama and Amber who are kind of like the main architects for the petitions and the list of demands. We did um, an interview with the local, um, what's it called? radio station there we go with the local radio station in Ithaca and so um the person that interviewed us like reached out to the media relations department of the university and was like oh like can you explain this like confirm or deny like whether you've been untagging your students and I think we have like the word for word text on the website but the essence of what they told us was like we have the right to untag or delete whatever we want to on our social media, but we're not obligated to do that. And so I was like, okay, like, so what I'm taking away from that statement is that, yes, you are within your rights to do it, but you're also explicitly saying that you didn't have to do it and that you probably did it anyway, because we have the screen recorded videos showing the difference between the two pages from one day to the next. So something fishy was definitely afoot and the weird kind of like policy heavy copy and paste response um they gave the person who did that radio story was like you know it's making it hard for you to not look a little suspicious right now yeah because that statement to me what they said to you is like we do it's like you had to choose to do yeah. that you had to it wasn't like a rule or anything it's, it's not like you know i'm just following orders here it was like you had to go through and choose which ones to untag and you specifically chose these ones because it doesn't mm -hmm. show the university in a good light and you know it contradicts like you were saying earlier with their stated you know mission of like inclusivity which is I mean, you know, standing from where I'm at, Dan and I being in the, the non-Ivy Leaguers, we're like, oh, yeah, it, just Please. anyone can go to the Ivy League. That's that's what it's all about. It's not about being ridiculously selective or anything. The only time I went to Cornell was to see a Flaming Lips concert, and uh, it was on a Sunday. It was pretty good. <laughs> oh, oh, Dan, this is actually perfect detour for a second. Um, Gabby knows extensively about the Barton Hall Grateful Dead show from 1977 because she was a tour Please. guide at Cornell. Gabby, you can speak on this as much as or as little as you want, but Dan and I come from Deadhead families, and that show is just absolutely legendary. Yeah, I don't know if I would say I have extensive knowledge. I just know that it happened. Um, and like our mascot, um, okay, so our official mascot is the Big Red, which is an amorphous, I don't know what that is. I guess that's what we are as a collective. But our unofficial mascot is Touchdown the Bear. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, some of the Cornell gear that you can buy at the campus store, instead of, like, Touchdown has, like, 
the little Grateful Dead bears. And then it says Cornell. So that's one thing I know about the Grateful Dead and Cornell. But that's probably where the <laughs> where the buck stops. The most commercialized uh, band of the 60s, for sure. But we yeah. love them. Well, and also, you know, we must apologize for the brief detour away from uh, <laughs> black politics on campus to talking about probably the whitest thing about your campus. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we love that. I, I it's a great also... Show. I also wanted to ask, though, uh, could you speak at all to the, to the uh, it, it seems like the, a lot of anti-Semitic uh, incidents sprung up after Trump was elected, it seems like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think there was the one that comes, I can think of maybe like two or three other instances, but the one that most readily comes to mind, like, um, I think this was my junior year and my sophomore year, both of those years I was um, a resident advisor and some people who were walking back from a dining hall like saw a huge swastika like in the green kind of area that we have around where the dorms are. Um, and it took res life like a really long time to say what they wanted to say. A lot of people were like dissatisfied with um, like the administration's response to things and like how they handled things. And there's a huge um, Jewish community at Cornell um, and a huge like tradition of like Jewish students at Cornell too. And so it's kind of like, if you at least cannot like intrinsically, like I was saying before, like be devoted to these causes, like you have to recognize the optics of this. And like, you also have to think about like, this is a huge network of students who comprise a lot of your student body and a lot of your um, like alumni. So for you to not handle events like that, well, it's just kind of like you also, it makes you look bad. And then it also will have like repercussions for you and your relations with people. Right. So there was that something similar happened near the arts quad. I remember um, there was once like a bunch of flyers that just had a lot of really hateful speech and a lot of like, nazi-ish things on them that were yeah, I'm, I, I'm seeing one that says just say no to jewish lies uh, that was placed on the ezra cornell statue yeah in 2017 i mean these are there's a lot of not there's swastikas on it there's nazi iconography it says join the white gang Mm-hmm. This flyer looks like shit, though. Honestly, like it's uh, the, yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter how it, the graphic no, design is. No, I know, but it, like, um, like kind of like what Gabby was saying earlier. Um, when anti-Semitic things happen, especially on like college campuses, because we're well represented on many college campuses, um, we like there we have a really well-oiled machine. The Jewish, the Jewish people in America, I'm saying, um. Especially, I mean, I mean, also they got a they got a machine over in Israel too, but that's not what we're talking about here today. Um, there, th- we have this kind of like strong response system that because I mean, um, plenty of Jews are well represented in industry. In you know, we 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 tend to earn more money on average. I'm not trying to like hit it, go into any stereotypes, but I'm just stating kind of like a demographic fact about us. And there are tons of civil society organizations that um, combat anti-Semitism. So I, like, it, whenever I see an organization like this, the Solar Cross Society that um, was supposedly has no, in the article it says there are no mentions of this like organization on the internet. It's always like this kind of like tiny, just group of doofuses who I don't want to state like they can do real harm, but they come up against like the, you know, this, the, 
the machinery that we have to combat anti-Semitism in the U.S. and they're almost always stamped out, which is good. And it's a, but it it's just like it's just, it's just, I find it sad as a as a white Jewish person comparing that to um, the struggles that Black students on campus have. Not that I want to like you know. Com- pit one against the other but you would think because there's just so many more black people in the u.s than there are jewish people um that that it would be a bigger priority and it just speaks more to like the i don't know shitty racism that kind of down that that like downplays or um weakens i guess institutions that fight on behalf of 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 black students because they're not as well represented on on uh, especially on like ivy league campuses and uh yeah so i don't know i don't know if that's something that you came in came across in your organization or organizing days not specifically about jewish organizations but like the how difficult it is to get people to care about like black issues um on campus when there are so many i mean you think that this is a battle that we've been that black people in the u.s have been fighting for hundreds of years at this point yeah, I think like one thing that at least has been good about this process is in talking to like different students, like faculty, staff, just like community members and alumni, like we've gotten a lot of really good advice and we've been able to like tap into some networks that we wouldn't have had access to if we hadn't um, reached out to those people or if they hadn't reached out to us. But I think one thing that was like kind of unexpected. Okay, so first of all, we didn't even know that like Cornell had like a conservative newspaper or something like that. Um, I think it's called the Cornell Review, but again, I had never. Oh my heard god, of it. the Binghamton Review was our conservative <laughs> newspaper. Yo, conservatives Stop. love that review oh phrase, the god. National Review. They're all yeah, about they're that. They're all trying to be the National Review on campus. Goddammit. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the National Review is like the only conservative paper of any kind of note. Or with any kind of prestige, because obviously Fox News is massive, but you know the the National Review crowd, even though they agree with everything the Fox News people say, they seem to think they're like above it. So, so yeah, putting the word review on your paper is definitely a warning sign, uh, even if you're a c- campus journalist or whatever. Yeah. Ben Shapiro, bullshit incoming. <laughs> they were like, I don't know, um, like calling us. I mean, we do consider ourselves to be radical thinkers, but not in the way that. Uh, you know, the author used the term. And I think there were also like some comparisons to what we were doing, like Maoist, like communist reforms. And so it's just kind of like criticism like that is not constructive because I can't do anything with it. And because it's, I think it just detracts from any kind of conversation where we could improve like the plight of um, black students and otherwise minoritized students on our campus. So I think with things like that, I'm just like, um, yeah, it's so obvious that this is not coming from, I don't see these as political issues. I see these as moral issues. But when we get criticism like that, it's so obvious that this is not coming from a place of care or concern um, for black students or for just like any students who don't feel like they have enough of a voice on our campus. It's just coming from a place of like your so probably narrow experience and perspective because if you took a step back and just like looked at these issues from some vantage point um, that wasn't your own then I think you would realize like the worth or at least the value of what we're doing and not make like extraneous connections and assumptions we also saw like a reddit (laughs) like a reddit I don't Uh know what they're called but it was like oh like since we're demanding things like why don't we change the name um, from Cornell University, like to Cayuga University, and like, why don't we just do? And I was just like, I mean, okay, 
<laughs> it was like, yeah, I, you suggested it. I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know. It, it, yeah, it's just, it's very clear that people, um, if, if a lot of people seem to not care about, um, like what black students experience on campus. And then I think some people take it a step further and make fun of those struggles. And so even though stuff like that is kind of like, mm, like I wish you were a better person and I hope that someone has a serious conversation with you. It's just kind of like further encouragement because yeah, it shows us that we're doing a good job of what we're trying to do. Yeah, you're making the right people mad, which is fine because if they're getting mad about it, then you, they're not going to be your ally anyway. And anyone who like, Anyone who who says that you're being a Maoist because you like care about you know race equity on the I'm like what did Mao ever have to say about college campuses in the U S nothing literally nothing Sam could you could you explore the Mao the Mao uh, like the Mao attack and how conservatives use it a little more just like what why even go to Mao because he was like one of the guys who did like who was a l vaguely left. And he and he uh, did the great leap forward. Like what? What is the? Why do they use Mao? I think they use Mao as like the most extreme left wing thing because there's two reasons. Number one, if you ever meet people who self identify as Maoists in the U.S., they are kind of I don't want to write them all off, but they're like all kind of completely insane. A lot of them, a lot of like the third worldists think that there's no way that revolution can happen in the United States, which is why a lot of the left doesn't bang with them because they see that as like shutting down, you know, movements that deserve credit in the U S or in the developed world. They, a lot, it's also like a, it's an antiquated ideology. It's more Maoism third worldism is like really from back in the day. It's from the days of like Sukarno and in Indonesia and stuff like, it's not something that's like very widespread now. I mean, even China is not really a Maoist country now because they're, you know, they're dungus. Now they follow the, um, the model that was put in place by Mao's successor, Deng Xiaoping and kind of mixing uh, the free market with like a command economy. But um, I think the, so I think that's one reason that they bring up Mao all the time, because if you've been on campus or if you've been in like New York city or something, and you've seen like some Maoist organization, it's really easy to just pin, to make, to make people feel like that's the totality of like the far left. But I think the other reason is because, you know, like you ever argue with any conservatives about like socialism, they instantly are like, well, you know that uh, socialism killed like 200 billion people in the 20th century, right? And they, I, I've always noticed that the, the numbers get inflated the most with studies of, with studies of uh, Mao and, um, you know, revolutionary China after the Chinese Civil War. They tend to say that Mao killed anywhere from between 50 to 100 million people, but then also like Mao doubled the population of the country. So I don't really understand how that works. And then um, a lot of that is just due to uh, the most of the deaths under Mao were due to famine. I'm not going to say that, that he wasn't brutal. I mean, the Chinese, you know, the Chinese communist project at that time was like a, a world shaking revolution. But um, but it's just I think it's just something that's not well understood. So it's easy to say like, oh, well, you know, Mao killed 200 billion people. So he's the worst of he's worse than Stalin. He's worse than any other socialist leader. And I think they also kind of hate Mao the most because he kind of got away with it. Like um, the U.S. was never a the, the Chinese Communist Party didn't fall, quote unquote, the way that like the USSR fell and stuff like that. So I don't know. I think it's just kind of an easy buzzword. I, I Most of the people who talk about Maoism don't know the first thing about Mao Zedong, but you know, I'll get off my uh, my China wagon here. And um, no, you're more you're more articulate than Charlie Kirk when he talks about Plato. Wouldn't take much. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, but um, 
So this, this is a good segue, though, because people like this who are trying to shut down this this uh, conversation by bringing up, you know, revolutionary figures who don't have any relation to the task at hand uh, are not trying to contribute to it. And like you said, Gabby, they're also not trying they might they might be even trying to make fun of the experience on campus. And this is where we get into real good hog planet territory, because if you read even like even a lot of liberal papers like the New York Times and stuff in their op-ed sections, they talk about campus activism as if it is just this like wild world of people canceling one another for their pronouns and like just, you know, tr- pink haired SJWs triggered all <laughs> over the place. Like what, what, um, how would you relate your experience to campus activism to like, if, if you have any awareness of the like kind of straw man of college campus, that's, of college activism. You know, the turning points up. USA types like that we exactly. know about from Twitter, but I don't know if they actually I don't know if they actually really exist or if they're just like imagined for Twitter, but <laughs> I will say that like this year is probably it's weird cuz it's like my last year at Cornell, but I think um like in some ways, well, in like the way that you would think it's like my first year um well, it's hard for me to call it activism because I just kind of feel like it's me being black and frustrated and using my resources. But um, this, like, there was some stuff about like changing my college into a college of public policy, and so I stepped into that conversation. And then there's this do better Cornell stuff. So I definitely don't want to speak on this as like someone who has like tons of experience with campus activism. But um, as someone who is like interested in education and like the experience of uh, black students and other um, students of color, like in educational institutions, like I think that one thing I'm noticing like in this experience is like a lot of people kind of like what Sam was saying before, like a lot of people are not even willing to do the bare minimum And I think that's what separates people who are truly like devoted to this cause and want to see change from people who um, are fine just benefiting from things as the way that they are and they don't really care about the plight of other people. Like um, I know a lot of people on our team have expressed that like, oh, you know, like I sent like this graphic or this link to these people in my friend group or these people in my organization and like they still haven't posted it or you know, some of the things that your campaign has talked about has made me rethink the way that we do things like in my student organization. But when I ask people for input, or I ask people to have a conversation about it, like, they're not receptive to it. And they won't even like, I made a Google form, and I just asked people to type out their thoughts, and I only got one response. So I think what we're seeing is like, yeah, people get people who are doing the work or contributing the most or doing so in the most meaningful ways, get super frustrated when there are these people around them who profess to have these values or people who tweet or like carry themselves in a way that would make you think that this like bare minimum opportunity you have to like voice your concerns or share something like this is someone that I can depend on to do that. And then to not see those people do that, which that which requires like the least amount of effort um, has definitely been frustrating. I think for some people that we're working with and then for some people who are trying to foster that kind of change and like ride that wave of student activism. Yeah. So I guess that is what uh, a pink haired SJW <laughs> would be doing at a moment like this. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I, I agree with that interpretation based on stuff that I've heard just because 
um, yeah, it gets, you know, frustrating and you get angry when you care so- about something, even if, like you said, it's something that um, you don't think that you're necessarily an activist about, but something that affects you personally. Um, and then when you bring that up to people who are more complacent or not affected by these issues, they're kind of acting like, like you know, it's, it's it, to me it reads like, you say to someone, I care strongly about this thing, and the person's like, whatever. And then the person's like, well, when you say whatever to me, someone who cares about this so deeply, it's like annoying, number one, but number two, you're kind of setting my cause back. And then the person who's being nonchalant and doesn't care is like, whoa, 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 you're going too far. You're you're villainizing me. You're like put it, you're you're calling me out and all this stuff. And it's like, no, people are just asking you to like give a shit. I, I personally also think that a lot of these columnists who write about the horrors of campus activism don't yeah. have you know haven't set on foot on a campus in like forty years. No, and most of them are funded by the foulest billionaires, the Koch brothers, the the, the alive one. And, um, <laughs> Watch you know, over him, X. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I mean, campus uh, politics for the right uh, is funded by billionaires, and campus politics for the left is uh, individuals uh, who are you know, putting in the work. So, I mean, there's clearly a difference. I think it's also kind of like the same thing that we see with like protest coverage of like the news reporters are, or whoever else are really quick to cover things like when they get violent or when it's like really the heat of the moment. Looting, for example. Yeah, like they're not there for the back, uh, what is it called? Like background kind of things that happen um, beforehand. Like, like I know there was... Um, in 2017, like when that black student was assaulted in College Town, there were some like national news people who came to cover the protests because um, the sit-in that happened it, that year, like in Willard Street Hall, which is basically like our student union building, was kind of like emblematic of the sit-in that happened in 1969, um, or like the Willard Street Hall takeover, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, I think another thing that's kind of messed up is like, one, yeah, you only show up when things are at their worst and then they're not even really that bad. And then two is like probably like five or 10 or however many years from now, like universities like to do this thing where they really like glorify student activism without even realizing like your students are protesting because you did something wrong and they want you to fix it. And if you fix it, like that's cool, but it's really weird for you I mean, it, it speaks well of you that you admit students who are like politically active and like have morals that they care about and want to talk about. But it's a reflection on your institution that people have to keep on asking you to like do your job or do it in a different way or do it in a better way. So like, you know, yeah, I was a tour guide. And w- even if I wasn't a tour yeah, guide, I like, was you, too. <laughs> like you hear <laughs> <a dumb> job. <laughs> <laughs> like you go like, you know, in your training script, like you pass Willard Street Hall and you can tell people about the takeover and like how the picture of the students exiting like won the Pulitzer Prize and all these things like and people are like wow like mm, yeah we love it when we see student activism on a campus well I really want my kid to come here but it's like you first like that was met with resistance like when it happened right like you weren't happy that it was happening when it happened but now that you can like Mm, spin it a different way now that it's like 50 years later and it's arguable whether we've made substantial progress or not like now you want to talk about it like it's a good thing so i think that's another thing that's kind of messed up 
Yeah, and just for the audience who doesn't know the instance that you're referring to, can you give a little background on that that 1969 protest and like what that meant at the time? Mm-hmm. So what happened then, um, like, you know, you see a lot of college campuses like starting to um, admit like more students of color and students who aren't like white or rich. But one of the things you see like, as a symptom of that, and I guess one of the things we're also dealing with now is like, just because you let these people in doesn't mean that, um, you know, they have like an equitable or like enjoyable experience once they're in your university. So one of the ways um, that students on our campus went about amending that was forming this cooperative housing that was for black women called like Wari House. Um, so that, you know, like you're not getting weird looks like when you are putting a bonnet on or doing whatever things black women do to be great. So one night um, there was like a cross burning that happened in front of that cooperative house. And um, I was reading up about it the other day and actually like the Ithaca police department, like they obviously never found any evidence of this, but they tried to be like, oh, like the Afro-American society on campus are the ones who burned this cross in front of a house full of black women because they wanted to have something to protest about. Of course, they never found any evidence or proof that because who would ever do that? The trope in conservative media that is as old as time is like literally like like we've we've seen this many times. That guy who wrote on his fucking driveway, Blacks Blacks rule. Or the, I saw a recent one that was like death to whites, but the E was left off, so it said like death to wits or something. Like that. Yeah, clearly not a not written by someone yeah. who's actually got skin in the game on this. Uh, yikes! Oh my goodness. So yeah, so that happens, and then um, black students get together. Um, what is it called? Students for a democratic society get together. Um, other like third world activism type of groups like that get together and they decide to occupy Willard Strait Hall, which um, at the time, like the fourth and fifth floor of the building were used as like hotel spaces for parents or whoever else was coming to stay on campus. So they go and they stage like an occupation of this building and it's happening during parents weekend. Um, so, So like a bunch of people are coming to visit their kids on campus. And so like really embarrassing very bad look for the university, but um, they're like, yeah, parents, you should probably get out of here because we're doing a protest, but, you know, just sitting peacefully doing their thing. Then um, a bunch of white brothers from, I think, the fraternity, like, Delta Upsilon come, and they are, like, banging um, on the building, like, trying to make things aggressive, trying to hurt people. So some students leave, and they come back, and they're armed. Um, And then when it's time to, like, you know, and the protests negotiate with the administrators and stuff. Um, the students like exit Willard Strait Hall and they're all brandishing, you know, the weapons that they went to pick up in case they needed to protect themselves. And so that's the photo that um, won a Pulitzer Prize that year. So basically that's the Willard Strait Hall takeover, a peaceful protest that is escalated by people who are probably white supremacists. And that only happened because someone performed a hate crime where a bunch of black women were living. Yeah, those are those outside agitators we keep hearing about, right? Um, no, but the uh, MS thirteen did it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, no, sorry, um, that wasn't meant to demean the incident. Uh, it was not meant no, to demean no the brave members of MS thirteen either. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, anyway, um, 
so no, I I agree with you. I think it's um interesting the dynamic you've brought up about Cornell and other universities where they highlight these instances of activism in their past but omit the fact that the activism was like we were doing something wrong and it was bad and that's why these students got mad at us you see a similar thing honestly in washington dc where people oh, this people love to talk about how the city has so many protests i'm like well yes because it is the center where people make all the decisions that are bad that's why we are always protesting because there's only something bad that they have done that we are here to protest but um, I do want to st- take a step back because um, you just remind me of something else that you were involved in on Cornell's campus, which was the um, the cor- the university wanted to change the name of it, one of its um, one of its schools to a public policy school. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, Ooh. you can speak more accurately about this. <laughs> yeah, so um, that college was is the College of Human Ecology, and so. Um, it's named after a theory that like Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who was the scientist who worked on developing like the Head Start program, um, he had this theory called like the human ecological systems, whatever it's called. So basically that theory is just positing that all of these different spheres of like life and involvement that we live in like affect the individual development of people and children. So everything from like the historical period in which you're born to the area in which you're born to the institutions around you in your neighborhood, all of that affects you as an individual, even though that's happening on a systemic level. So the whole vision of this college is thinking about um, how these different realms of existence, like what those different realms of existence are and how we impact them and how they impact us in return, which is why there's such like a hodgepodge of majors in it. Cause you can take a lot of different lenses to answer that question. So there's things like human development, which is my major. We have like, um, a nutritional sciences major, a bunch of like bio-y, like pre-med things. It's the home to the only like fashion major in the Ivy League. And then there's also um, our policy analysis and management department. So there was um, a motion to change the, there. well, okay. So there were two plans, but the plan that was being like amped up the most was a plan to change this whole interdisciplinary college um, into a college of public policy, which makes like nomenclature wise, it makes no sense. If you're someone who is interested in design or again, the only fashion major in the whole Ivy League, why would you look for that program within a college of public policy? Um, And why would you try to elevate? Because literally when we have these listening sessions with, um, I don't know what their official name is, like the work team, I guess, in charge of formulating recommendations for the administration, like they straight up said, like, this is being done to raise the prominence of policy scholars and policy research um, at Cornell. So why would you sacrifice the educational experience, your ties to non-policy related alumni and like your ability to reach out to prospective students and like talk to them about why this is a great college to enroll in by changing the name to something that's not representative of the community and that doesn't recognize that there are other things besides policy that go on in this college um, that also do a better job of like retaining their students because the student interests match the faculty interests, which is a problem that the PAM um, department was having. So 
we wrote, a lot of people wrote like op-eds and like letters to the editor for our school newspaper. We talked to alumni, um, people within our different student organizations in the college, like talked about why this is not a good idea. Um, there was a petition and we were getting ready to um, stage a sit-in um, where like the central administration offices on our campus are. But then like a couple of hours before we were about to do that, they're like, oh, um, actually, we're not going to not going to change the whole name. We're just going to go with the second option and make it a school of public policy and then move ahead with super departments, which I'll, that doesn't that that'll take me a long time to talk about why I don't think that's a good idea, but whatever. So, um, yeah, so that's the thing that we were involved in and the big I mean, I'm glad that they changed it and I would have gone to the sit in if I had to, but it just like the timing of it because we decided like the date and time um, of when the sit-in would be and then they announced it like maybe an hour beforehand as opposed to like way beforehand we were like okay that's also kind of fishy but again yeah you see these universities not taking things into consideration and just making plans and then student voice is kind of like secondary in that so that was that experience yeah and I also wanted to mention my as soon as I heard about this whole thing my first thought was almost nothing good has ever come out of any school that called itself a public policy school. It's like this, it's, it's sort of similar to the way that schools like my, my, it's so technocratic, isn't it? It really is. That's exactly the right word. And it's also like this idea that the only reason you'd be studying something like human ecology, which like, like you said, is this interdisciplinary multifaceted field of study is so that you could form a product at the end of it, which is a, you know, a policy. It's as if it's always imagining the like scientific knowledge or academic knowledge as being the means to an end. And the end is always something that's only possible within like capitalism or a, a government with that has a state. Um, like with the business school, you take all these thoughts and ideas about, you know, human psychology or mm -hmm. sociology and turn them into marketing or like how to design a product and sell things in and then the flip side of that is all these schools that have big government or public policy schools where they say that you know basically all of these things that we're studying are just so that we can get a new bill in front of congress it's like if we're going to actually transform society and not be beholden to these institutions that we've taken for granted this whole time we have to be able to imagine something beyond it and when you know the the most prestigious universities in the academy are supposedly are, are, you know, turning away from that. It just kind of, to me, it seems like it's cutting down on the imagination of what we can accomplish unless it falls into this field of like, can you sell a product out of it or can you pass a policy out of it? So that was like, I don't know if you agree, but that was like where I was at when I first heard of it <laughs> in general. No, yeah, I definitely agree. And I think like something that's another kicker is that like, that's not even the advice that they were given to raise the prominence of some of the scholarship at the university. So um, there was like an independent audit that was done. It was like specifically about psychology because we have a psychology department in our College of Arts and Sciences, which is like a little bit more theoretical and more of like the traditional kinds of psychology that people would think about. And then there's my major human development in the College of Human Ecology, which is a little bit more applied and you're thinking more about like developmental things and like sociological kind of concepts. But um, the audit was done to kind of think about ways that we could raise the quality of like that kind of scholarship at the school. And 
what um, a professor told me that the audit said was basically like, you know, give more funding to the departments that you want to see get better and really highlight the interdisciplinary nature of, you know, the things that are happening here. So if the advice that you were given is to highlight the interdisciplinary major of, like nature of things, why would you get rid of that by changing the name of the most, probably in my opinion, I'm biased, but in like the name of the most interdisciplinary college you have on your campus to something that is very like one size fit all. And one of the things, one of the things, one of the people said was like, oh, like public policy is interdisciplinary. And literally all of the students who were at that listening session, like they laughed, like, oh <laughs> and I'm like, you are correct, I guess. But by definition, human ecology is interdisciplinary. Right. You really have to do some secondary thinking to think about how public policy influences these different spheres, as opposed to a theory that basically says everything is connected. You know, so I definitely agree that a lot of the time we focus on academic knowledge and research and whatever kind of purely human things that people can turn out. We think about that in terms of like, how can we profit off of that or how can we have something more tangible? Like knowledge in and of itself isn't always valued. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, that dodge that you described them saying that like, oh, p public policy is interdisciplinary reminds me of one of the worst jokes I tell repeatedly because I'm a history major. <laughs> um, whenever people ask me what I studied in college, I say everything that happened in the past, literally everything. Ask me anything about anything that ever happened, and I know it because that's we have we all have to do that. <laughs> you can see how good that's of a, a joke. Yeah, it's like it's really bad. Bit. Nobody's laughing. It's a good bit. Uh, I've heard it. I've heard him say it before, so it's really good. <laughs> Not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna yeah, put Ga it in a Gabby's laugh. being maybe really I'll put professional. in a laugh track here, Sam, <laughs> just just to help you out. You, you, okay, so the people on this podcast with me are real pros. They're laughing off mic, just hysterically all over the floor right now. But you can't hear it because because they're professionals and they don't laugh into the mic. That's why. Uh, just for all the audience, because you guys don't have the video, I can see that everyone is laughing at my jokes. And with that, I will hand it over to Dan. Yes. Um what was like the timeline here of like COVID and leaving campus and like when you started this, uh, mm -hmm. this do better Cornell uh, situation? So I think the timeline of like when the COVID stuff happened, uh, probably like March ish, we got an email that was basically like, if you can leave campus in the next two weeks, like you should do that. And so then a bunch of students and faculty got freaked out because the professors weren't told, I think we low-key think that email like somehow got leaked because um, the information on it, like I think it showed up on a website before it came into people's email inboxes. So then we were like, if this is pertinent to everyone, like why would it be on a website before it's like put directly into where we normally check for all of our information? So something funny maybe happened there. Um, and then after that, we were given, because everybody was like stressed out and professors weren't ready to like shift their classes online because they weren't told about that before we were told about it. Um, it switched to like, okay, now like the three weeks leading up until spring break, like a moratorium on all assignments, no classes, everything like that. Um, so just like use this three weeks to figure out like what you need to do. Um, to leave campus and then after spring break like we're going all remote 
Um, and then because of that three weeks, I think that um, we got like an extra week added onto the semester so that the week that would have been like senior week, like week of graduation stuff became um, the week of finals. So that's what happened with the COVID stuff. But I think that this campaign was kind of born more out of frustration with all the anti-blackness and like all the racism that we are seeing like kind of boil to the surface in this moment, like with the murder of George Floyd and like Nina Pop and people like that. And then just kind of like being dissatisfied with the administration's response to things. Um, I low-key don't remember. So basically most of our stuff started going live like June 12th, but um, I don't remember whether <laughs> whether this happened before or after we launched um, our things, but people woke up one day and like uh, their Canvas accounts, um, which is like where all your coursework and online assignments and things like that show up, like they just automatically like had a PDF of like how to be an anti-racist um, on their Canvas accounts. And the university was like, yeah, like we are gonna do like a book club and that's what we're gonna do. And so <laughs> everyone was just like, I just don't think a book club is a good enough response to institutional racism. And a really great point that um, my friend Mame made was like, people self-select into things like book clubs. So the people that are going to participate in that are people who are actively devoted to this, looking to learn more, maybe not in the place, um, like in their development of anti-racism that they wanna be, but like really, really trying their best to learn more and be better like co-conspirators in liberation. It's not gonna hit home with the people who are non-racist or flaming racist or people like that, because if you don't wanna do the book club, you just don't have to do it. Right. So yeah, and yeah. online classes, we know we know how easy it is to bullshit through those things. And that's not even a class. That's just a seems like a oh here's we have a we we bought a bunch of copies of this book and uh, here you go. It's yeah. not really like uh, an active. Yeah, you want to learn how to be anti-racist? Go teach yourself. You know. Yeah. It's like what we bought you the book. Go do it. <laughs> like even though we won't fail you or anything if you don't read it. Like it's it's you know you're, they're not. They're not, you know, sadly, like, they're not providing enough of an incentive. It's not enough of an incentive for people who aren't down with the cause mm -hmm. to just read it because they have access to it. This effort to kind of, like, I don't know, do, do like, the least possible, yeah. like, it's got to just be super frustrating at this point. It's like diet allyship. It's mm. <laughs> a good yeah. phrase. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was looking at the timeline and we've gone over this a little bit. Um, I was wondering if you have updates for anything that's happened in like the last week or two regarding this. Um, anything like new or where what's what's next for this uh, movement? Mm -hmm. So I think that. Well, yeah, this is on the website, but the thing that a lot of things have happened in response to is this email campaign that we've launched. So we've got a template, we got um, the email addresses of trustees and presidents and other kind of big people like that at the university, um, kind of like reiterating that, you know, like, we know you have seen this, and we are looking for some kind of response or like an action plan as to how you're gonna go about unraveling these things. Um, this, uh, the website and some of the material of the petitions, like not all of the material due to like time constraints, but some of it 
and the link to the website for people to explore on their own was given during the last um, board of trustees meeting, which took place um, on Friday, I guess was like the 26th. Um, so that has happened. I think now what we're trying to do is like use that campaign to set up some kind of like dialogue or other frame of like accountability with the people who would be in charge of implementing these changes. And it's also been good because we've been able to get a lot more um, feedback from uh, like alums and community members because um, this is like a more easy thing to do, I guess. Um, so yeah, as of right now, it's just been more meetings with people and then thinking of next steps, like what statistics do we want to report on? What data do we need access to? Who can we talk to to make sure that um, these things roll out? And then I think like, well, it's, I don't want to say like it's funny, but again, like another fishy thing that happened. Um, one of the statistics that we reported on was like this upper, the uppermost tier of like senior leadership at the university is senior administrative officials. So one of the statistics that we reported was that like of these, I think it's like 16 or 17 individuals who are in that rung of leadership, like none of them are black and none of them are Latinx. And so we were emailing back and forth with um, a professor and he was like, oh, by the way, like, I think that you should um, check th that what you reported or updated or something, because now um, this guy named Avery August is like listed as one of those officials. Um, and Avery August is a black man. I think he's the vice provost of academic affairs and the presidential advisor on diversity and inclusion. But um, again, we have video of what the website looked like when we reported that statistic because we gave it as context to the people who follow our Instagram account. And then a day after the email campaign starts, like all of a sudden there's this black guy in this position of leadership. But to us, it was really funny because we found articles from our school's newspaper that show in 2017, like stories about... Um, him like getting these promotions to these posts, right? He's been a vice provost since 2018 and he's been the presidential advisor since 2019 and it's 2020 and you just updated your website now and none of the other people who are vice provosts have been elevated to senior administrative official. So to us, it was just like, one, this looks weird that you would make this choice for this singular individual, like given the moment that we're facing right now. And then two, if he really is in this rung of leadership for you to not update your public facing website for at least a year to reflect that looks really bad. And it erases the presence of like black people in the leadership of um, your university. And then I think that um, someone looked at like the big org flowchart of who reports to who in the university. And um, it seems like even though this person is, the, I don't know if it's in the uh, capacity of being like the presidential advisor or a vice provost, but it seems that this person doesn't even like report directly to the president to be like listed as a senior administrative official. So we are hoping to see like, um, a news article exploring why this is and why their website was just now updated, but we kind of, it's like low-key kind of obvious to us that this update was made in response to a statistic that we reported. So I think that's like the biggest like, 
like thing that's happened. This guy may have may or may not have held like a role like this, but they just chose to publicize it after they had been criticized for this. Um, it seems, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong on my interpretation there, but like you said, the timing is just like very odd that they're like, no, he's been here this whole time. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yes. Like I, <laughs> I don't know. Like it's, we were, some of us were talking about it and we were like, this is low key, like peak performativity right now. Cause either of the jobs that got him to be pushed up to those like he's been working in one for a year and the other for two years so like this also goes back to the part of the petition where we're like you need to update your websites regularly and make information that's relevant like more readily available to people because if it is just the case that it was like a clerical error then who why do you not update your website frequently enough um Universities are so lazy about that, but in this instance, it's like somewhere like Cornell. It's not like it's like DeVry University, you know? They probably have the budget to pay a webmaster is what you're saying, I think. Yeah. And that they probably already pay like 12 of them. <laughs> yeah. Where do you see this going at Cornell? I mean, are you are you leaving you're, you're leaving campus now? Do you expect to be back on campus ever at this point because of COVID? Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Uh, yeah, so... I graduated. Um, we didn't do, obviously we didn't do, oh, thank you. Yes, we didn't do like an in-person ceremony. We didn't do like some of the slideshows that other universities did, but we did get like videos of different people in leadership uh, at different spots on campus, um, the campus that we couldn't return to. So a lot of people are just kind of like, this was like salt in the wound, but they did just release um like the plan for reopening, which contained information about um, what the class of 2020 graduation would look like, but um, little to no one in the class of 2020 received it. Like I had to ask one of my junior friends to forward it to me, um, which again speaks to the need for clear communication channels. But I would, okay, so our graduation is now taking place um, June 3rd to 6th of next year, but the class of 2021 will graduate before us um, in May when we normally would have graduated. And our graduation is being combined with the first half of reunions um, for the class of 2015 and 2016. So they're just shoving it all into one weekend? Yes. And oh. another issue with all of it is like, um, Ithaca is a really small town anyway not a lot of lodging or boarding for the thousands of people who would return to campus for graduation. But all of the hotels in Ithaca are basically already booked. Elmira is like an hour, an hour, half away. Oh, I know Elmira. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, yeah. I've, uh, I, I once interned at a PBS station in Binghamton and we went to Elmira to interview someone who marched on Washington. Mm -hmm. And um, Elmira is a, is a, that is a, is a not a, that is like a town where you go to just, Put your feet up. <laughs> yep, and all the hotels there are also already booked. So <laughs> wow. it's like not only would people not have a place to stay if they were to come back Oh, to you could go to Niagara and... Falls. Come on. Just really <laughs> yeah. get, get up upstate and up to Canada or something. Um, so there's that. And then, like, also people will have jobs and other obligations, and it's not like – 
normal graduation where if you already like have a dorm or an apartment in Ithaca, like you can at least host some people there and like you yourself, the graduate will have somewhere to stay. Like we will not have that luxury. So I don't know what um, our return to campus will look like, um, but I'm hoping that by the time that happens, like some of these demands or like some of these institutional changes that we're asking for, like will be on the way to being completed because there's already support from faculty and alumni and different community members like that. So it's really just a matter of like, what's the plan going to be to make sure that these things happen. That graduation mess sounds completely insane. It seems like a ploy to benefit the uh, <laughs> the tourism board of like the Finger Lakes region or something. <laughs> but, um, this is such such nonsense. Yeah, that you yeah like you would Come drop. Come stay and bang them too. <laughs> Holiday Inn. Have a speedy. Is that what is that what it's called? There? Yeah, the speedy. They love the speedies. It's disgusting, <laughs> like chicken sandwich. It tastes like <laughs> tastes like dog shit. <laughs> Um, it's like their whole identity is this fucking sandwich, <laughs> this dead industrial town. It's been dead since the big, all, what was the big fucking factory that left? Like, was IBM, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Once man. IBM left, destroyed the region. Very sad, not funny. No, but funny in this context for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, sure. the idea that you would. Get like, a hotel in Binghamton, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, like the, the idea that like you would drop whatever job you're doing halfway across the country to come back to. Ithaca for your graduation to celebrate something that should have happened a year ago and they should have just I don't know they should have just done something nicer for you then or like schedule it at a time that's like convenient for any I don't know they could have done it a little better I would agree but um graduation definitely brings up something that I hear frequently as the most common criticism of student um activism especially on college campuses which I don't think is something I totally agree with, but um, it is something that is interesting to unpack, and I would like to get your perspective on. The, there is this common strain of thought that campus activism uh, is relatively non-effective because the people who are most involved with it end up graduating, and then, you know, depending on where you're at, half of them become, like, corporate lawyers or bankers or something like that, mm -hmm. and then they kind of drop, even if they had all these kinds of ambitious goals and stuff before they left they kind of it, it ends up falling by the wayside and then like the younger students have to kind of start over again or feel like they have to kind of start over again so i was wondering what your take on that is like or how you see um yourself being a part of this after you graduate and go on to do your phd research or if it's something that um you are trying to pass the torch to to the younger generation like how are you approaching that all too common criticism mm -hmm. Well, I think that my response to that criticism and my view of like the purpose of the university and especially if you get involved with campus activism, it's like to prepare you to be a critical enough thinker and to have the skills that you need to actively contribute to the society that we live in. Because I think that another, pe another thing that people who make that argument say is that like campus issues are like, you know, they're just campus issues. But the things that we are um, you know protesting against or looking to see change are reflective of the wider issues that we see in our society but it just so happens that we have more reach um, you know like in this kind of microcosm that is like the college campus so I feel like it, like yes it has worth um, and then as for like passing down the torch and like the problem of people who are um, most active, like graduating, 
Um, I think that is like something that um, campus organizations like do struggle with, but I think that the way that we um, are trying to prevent that is like by involving um, like Mame and I are graduated, but Amber is um, going to be a rising senior. So making sure that we are involving in like the planning and the creation of a lot of things that we're doing, people who will still be on campus. Um, and I think a lot of the things that we ask for um, are permanent solutions to make sure that you don't see this problem of people have graduated. So we stop having these conversations or we stop taking action. Um, because that's also like a symptom of temporary like presidential task forces that are set up to combat or study or come up with solutions or recommendations for whatever issues you're seeing is like the people on those task forces change or those task forces cease to exist. So one of the motivations behind some of the demands that we made for institutional changes are making sure that we have bodies that remain like a part of the institution and like embedded in it. So that even if there are different people who serve in these roles, like there will be a president and some kind of institutional support for further demands, because there's always going to be something to improve. And like, I think another thing that people don't realize is like, we are doing this because we care about Cornell and we liked our experience there, but we think that it could have been better. And we think that some of the hard things that we went through and other students went through could be avoided if there were institutional and just everyday changes that were made. So it's coming from a place of criticism, but it's also coming from a place of love. And that's why it's important to us that like we leave behind a good trail of practices and procedures and also leave behind standing bodies that like make sure that even if we're gone, like people will still have resources and spaces to go to, to keep on doing this kind of thing. So, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I, I think we've definitely covered what you've done for uh, hashtag do better Cornell and the website. We would definitely encourage all our listeners to go check that out. Uh, it's very easy to find. Like we said, the website is just dobettercornell.com, and there's tons of information and links and resources on there for anyone interested on social in, in social justice and especially in you know as it relates to Black liberation on campus at Cornell and beyond. And I think with that, we're gonna wrap it up. Uh, Gabby, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on Hog Planet this evening. Um, what what would you like what, what would you like to plug? So I think that I would encourage people um, to check out the petitions. Um, they're at dobettercornell.com. Um, there's links to like the PDF, just the full text. There's links to the signature ports. So if you agree with one of them um, or both of them or neither of them, there's an option to pick which ones you sign on to. There's tons of resources related to like the wider Black Lives Matter movement there. And then also some more campus-specific action items and events that are happening. Um, and, you know, use hashtag do better Cornell and just be a good person and be an anti-racist and don't be performative and look out for the people around you. Sam, uh, what, are, what, are, what are our plugs? What, 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 do we, what do we got? <laughs> well, we're plugging the Instagram at Hog Planet Podcast on Instagram. We are plugging our brand new Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash hogplanet. We are in the exalted 
like tier of podcasts that are deemed explicit by Patreon, so you cannot search for Hog Planet. I might I might be able to get that uh, fixed, so uh, we will we we'll, th- that might be fixed by the time this comes out. <laughs> right, hopefully it is fixed by then. But if not, you can always just go to Patreon.com/slash Hog Planet and find all kinds of bonus content that we are going to be releasing. It's something that we're building out uh, in our new kind of stage that we're in with this whole podcast thing. And you can always follow me at Wagstank on Twitter. Dan, what are your plugs? Uh, Follow on Twitter at Hog Planet. um, And uh, of course, you can follow me at Spaventacular, uh, S-P-A-V-E-N-T-A-C-U-L-A-R on uh, Instagram and Twitter. So that's all I got. This is Hog.